0: It's wonderful to be here with you. And I ask that you turn your in your Bibles to Romans 12. Romans 12, and we'll be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Arthur Miller's classic play, Death of a Salesman, is a tale of the tragic demise of a salesman named Willie Loman. I would say, spoiler alert, but the title of the play is Death of a Salesman. Willie's son, Biff, emerges as one of the main characters of the play, and though as a son, Biff has failed to make much of his life, he has a great admiration and respect for his father. Biff's reverence for his father, Willie, remains unchallenged until he discovers his father's long-term affair with a receptionist. This discovery renders Biff completely disillusioned with a changed opinion Of his father. At the end of the day, his father was not the man that he thought he was. Though Willie had preserved a veneer of dignity and respect from his family, his character and life was completely different than what they thought of him. Simply put, he lived a double life. Well, brothers and sisters, I believe that Willie Loman's sin and failure is reflective of a tendency among many of us. As Christians, we too often tend to bifurcate our lives. That is to say, we view our faith, our walk with Christ, as separate to the rest of our lives. And though perhaps we're not complete and utter hypocrites like Willie Loman, we fail to grasp the all-encompassing nature of the Christian life, viewing our faith merely as just an add-on or an attachment to our lives. Well, friend, might I suggest... But such an impoverished view of the Christian life finds no place in the Bible. Rather, God's word would have us understand that all of life, every moment, is for, uh, for the Christian is to be a life of worship, wholly dedicated to the Lord. With this in mind, would you read with me Romans 12, verses 1 through 2? The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray once more with me? Father, we ask in this moment that your spirit would exalt you and you alone. And Father, that you would humble us as sinners. And Father, that you would, from this message and from your word, commend holiness to us. Indeed, Lord, lives of true worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as I've already mentioned, our topic today is the topic of worship. And up to this point in Romans, the Apostle Paul has been expounding on the major theme of the letter, and that is the gospel itself. He has shown how the believer has been elected by God, renewed by the Spirit, justified, sanctified, and one day glorified. He's marveled how nothing can separate saints from the love of Christ. And he's teased out the implications of the gospel in Romans 9 through 11. And as you may remember, chapter 11 just ends with an exclamation point of praise to God for his unsearchable wisdom. But then in chapter 12, Paul makes a sharp turn for application. Shockingly, I think this would be a shock to you. It's certainly a shock to me. Up to this point in Romans, the previous 307 verses have made only three specific applications. There have been three applications in the previous 11 chapters of Romans. Paul has left his entire focus on that that person of God and not on us and how we should work out these implications in our life. Yet in chapter 12, the conduct of the saints in Rome emerges as Paul's chief concern the rest of the epistle. 12 through 16 will be solely focused on application in the life of the church. Therefore, it's at this intersection between doctrinal content of the gospel and practical instruction, that Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 serves as turning point. These two verses truly are the hinge of the entire epistle. Therefore, it deserves our attention. Perhaps to our surprise, Paul chooses to discuss worship. The main idea of this sermon is the main idea of the text, and that is that true worship is a right response to God. In which we offer our lives completely to Him. I'll say that again. True worship is a right response to God in which we offer our lives completely to Him. I have three points or three headings. They all are related to true worship. First, the grounds of true worship. Second, the nature of true worship. And third, the acts of true worship. So the ground, the nature, And the Acts of True Worship. Would you consider first with me heading number one, the grounds of true worship? It's practice of many churches to have what's called a a call to worship. Emmanuel Church, we open our services with a call to worship. And what's a call to worship to do? A call to worship is to invite us as God's people into a posture of, of worship to the Almighty God as we gather together. Friends, I think it's helpful to think of these verses in Romans 12 as a call to worship. Yet this call to worship will correct for what many of us are misconceptions about what worship truly is. May I ask, when you think of that word worship, what comes to mind? What do you think of when when Christians talk about worshiping God or, or the worship of God? Perhaps you think of what we've been doing today, and that's been singing God's praises. You think when God's people get together and they sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, some sing loudly, some sing poorly, some lift their hands in praise, but you think of singing when you think of worship. Or perhaps you think a little bit more broadly than that. You think of everything that we get to do when we gather to worship God. You think of the creeds and the scriptures that we read together. You think of the preaching of God's word that you sit under. You think of elements or or, or ordinances like the Lord's Supper or baptism and indeed these all would be parts of worship. Well friends, I believe these certainly are worshipful acts and the Bible does seem to reserve something special about gathered worship. Nevertheless, true worship is far broader than what happens on Sunday morning. Indeed, true worship is the right response to God. Don Carson defines worship as the proper response of all moral sentient beings to god ascribing all honor and worship to their creator god precisely because he is worthy now it sounds like i've been talking about the nature of worship at this point i told you i want to talk about the grounds of worship and the reason for that is we need to focus on that word response what is a response what do you think of when you think of a response well friends fundamentally a response is a response to something if worship is a response, what is it a response to? Brothers and sisters, it is a response to the content of God's character and personhood. Worship entails a rhythm of revelation and response. Beginning not with man, Christian worship centers on God as revealed in his word. The pages of scripture contain God's self-revelation, and such revelation most supremely is seen in the person of Christ, in his incarnation, in his life in his death and in his resurrection and his ascension and session at the right hand of God. This is how the Lord reveals himself in the person of Christ. God is the grounds of all true worship. His person, his nature, his goodness, his conduct, and his conduct towards us. But notice worship is not about us. It's not fixed on our experience. It is our reaction to an awesome God. And I say it is the only rational reaction. It is the only reasonable response to who God is and his conduct towards us in Christ. Friends, what's my point? My point is I, I belabor this point because Romans 12 begins a series of practical commands. Practical commands to the church and practical commands to individual believers. And Paul's starting point is God. He's going to open up the concept of worship, but the starting point is God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice first, he says, therefore. You could train to read your Bible. You know, when you see the word therefore, you need to see what is it therefore? What is this therefore pointing back to? Brothers and sisters, it is pointing back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. The first chapters of Romans present God as holy and altogether righteous. And the universal reign of sin has rendered all people guilty before God. Yet God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom, has chosen to save sinners through faith in Christ. And this salvation involves a hope of glory and release from bondage and sin. And you might remember from Romans 8, a profound peak of the epistle. Paul revels in the assurance believers have through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of Assurance. The spirit of adoption, the spirit that leads saints to glory, the spirit that gives people life. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul works out the problem of of Israel in light of the promises God makes to us in the gospel. And it's here where Paul celebrates God's marvelous work of election. Do you remember how chapter 11 ends? Look at verse 33 of chapter 11. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul says, therefore, he says, therefore, in light of this, because of this, because of who God is, because of his wisdom, Because of his his inscrutable ways. Because of what he has done for us in Christ. Therefore. And Paul adds by the mercies of God. The thing that comes to Paul's mind is mercy. Mercy, that compassion. That forgiveness that God renders to people who are altogether undeserving. Paul thinks of mercy. Brothers and sisters, it is the mercies of God and the gospel that form the basis of true worship. To the Christian, every song sung is a response to the mercies of God. To the Christian, every sin slain is a response to the mercies of God. To the Christian, every virtue cultivated is a response to the mercies of God. God himself is the grounds of true worship. Brothers and sisters, this matters. This matters not least of which because we live in an age that is thoroughly confused about worship. We live in an age that prioritizes experience above all things the experience of worship and not what that experience and who that experience is brought from. In an increasingly secular age, people are fleeing away from the church. And men called pastors are wringing out their hair, wondering how can we get people back to the church? Maybe if our music sounds more like what we hear on the radio. Maybe if our worship service looks more like a concert. Maybe if we stop talking about hard doctrines like the wrath of God and hell, maybe then and only then people will come. Friends, can you appreciate how man-centered that is? How worldly that is. Christian, I assure you, true worship, whether corporate or private, only happens in response to an encounter with the living God. Only through grappling with the mercies of God can we respond rightly. When we gather together, our greatest goal is not to have our own needs met. Your needs will be met, but that's not our foremost goal when we gather. Our task is to behold God. Our task is to ponder his mercies. Our foremost purpose of this gathering is to gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and in doing so be changed. That is our goal. God is the grounds of all true worship. Our task is to see and savor his majesty. It's not to pick the right songs that will usher us into a posture of worship. That's not what we're here for. We're here to behold God, to grapple with him, to consider the gospel. This is the grounds of true worship consider secondly with me the nature of true worship the nature of true worship paul says i appeal to you therefore by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship Paul appeals, appeal is that his readers, they, they offer themselves as a living sacrifice. Uh, he says that they present their bodies as a living sacrifice. I wonder what you think Paul means when he says, present your bodies. Well, it is not the case. It's not as though that bodies refers merely to the physical bodies of Paul's readers. Rather, the idea is much more that of one's whole self. So Paul is imploring his readers, he's appealing to his readers, You, I want you to present your whole selves, that is, your entire beings, to the living God. To the apostle Paul, the life of the believer is to be rendered completely consecrated to God. Not one moment of experience, not one square inch of real estate, not one atom of existence is beyond the scope of Christian worship. Rather, every part of the life is to be offered to God as a living sacrifice. Well, friends, this is no idea, no new idea to the Bible. It's no new idea to Romans. It's no new idea to scripture. There has always been, from the dawn of time, a, a, a link between worship publicly and all of life. Through worship of God in the Old and New Covenant was never intended to be disconnected from life. We can sometimes get this idea that the God of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is completely different from the God of the New Testament. And where the God of the Old Testament was merely satisfied with formal rituals, he didn't care much about the heart. But now the God of the New Testament cares about the heart. Scripture doesn't teach that. God has always been seeking worshipers who can worship in spirit and in truth. God has always been pleased by whole-souled worship. Yes, the Old Covenant was marked by more formal rituals and worship. Yet such holy rites and customs were always to be connected with the rest of life. Consider Psalm 24. The psalmist says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It's like who can approach the Lord? Who can worship the Lord? And what does the psalmist say? He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. My brothers and sisters, true worship has always included lips that praise God and lives that obey Him. Adoration of the Lord and action has always included hearts that love Him and hands that serve Him and worship Him. Scripture has no category, no category for worship unaccompanied by affectionate devotion to God. In fact, the Bible repeatedly criticizes. And, content- and condemns insufficient worship, worship that is eroded by sin and lack of repentance. Remember in Psalm 51, David's prayer, his psalm of confession to the Lord, what does he say? He says to the Lord, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What's the implication? The implication there is sacrifice paired with a hard heart or a person who's prideful that is despised by God. Those who approach God in forms of worship that make no good faith effort to change their lives, no good faith effort to live in obedience, that type of worship invites God's anger. It invites his wrath. But a humble heart. Contrite heart pleases the Lord. that person who lives a life of repentance. those who approach God that lead broke lead lives of repentance please God. The connection between praise and life is nothing new in the Bible. and it's also nothing new in the book of Romans. We've already seen this from Romans one, Romans one where Paul speaks to the relationship between who we worship and how we live. Paul, describing the wickedness of the world, he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. to The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's the point? The point there is that the devotion of the heart and the behavior of the life have always been inseparable. You're going to forsake the right worship of God. Your life is going to reflect that. Life and praise and worship are all connected. Yet we constantly deny this truth. We may not deny this truth in our words. We deny this truth in our lives. Ever since Eden, men and women delude themselves into thinking they can compartmentalize their lives. It's just a piece of fruit. What does God care? It's just a peak. What does God care what I look at? It's just a white lie. God knows my heart. We all possess the strange ability to confess truth one day and blatantly deny that truth the next day. Whether through willful sin, worldly distraction, or misplaced priorities, we forsake Christ and his call in our lives. Brothers, we need to repent. We trick ourselves into thinking that Sunday is the day I really need to be on. The rest of these days, I can live as a devil. My friends, true worship includes all of life. The call of the Christian is for transformation in every arena. No stone unturned. No sin unconfessed. No activity remains neutral. Indeed, everything must be consecrated to God. This is our living sacrifice. Paul says... That this living sacrifice must be holy and acceptable. That this is our spiritual worship. Other translations, you might have a translation that says reasonable or rational worship or service. The idea is that offering of our whole selves is true worship. Indeed, the only natural response to God is whole soul devotion to Him that penetrates every area of life. Christian, what are those parts of your life that you refrained from giving up to God, from offering to God? Are there practices and habits that directly contradict your discipleship of Christ? Perhaps a winnowing question we can ask is, can I bless God for fill in the blank? Can I thank God for Fill in the blank. Can I bless God for that form of entertainment? Can I thank God for that film or that TV show? Can I bless God and thank God for this relationship? Do my words honor him? Do all my words honor him? Are they holy? Are my works acceptable to God? Are there untidy corners in my heart that I've left dark and removed from Christ? Brothers and sisters, let us repent. Let us go to Christ. This is where holiness takes us. And this is where true worship takes us. Motivated by the mercy of God, we are to bring ourselves and our lives as a whole-souled offering to Him. A life in which we render ourselves completely devoted to God. A life of regular conformity and reconformity to the will of God. Christian, I encourage you, go to Christ. Adopt the posture of Psalm 139, where David says, Lord, thou hast searched me. Thou hast searched me, and you know me. And you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, and you search out my path and my my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. That's how David starts that psalm, Psalm 139. Do you know how he ends that psalm? He says, Lord, you have searched me. Then he closes the psalm. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He says, God, you have searched me in the past. Search me again. See if there is any sin in my heart. Any simple practice in my life that I have to repent of, that I have to give to you, that I have to turn away from. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are to be a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is the nature of true worship. If you consider thirdly with me the acts of true worship. As I've stated before, Romans twelve verses one through two, they they are to serve as a hinge. Uh, to the rest of the epistle. These verses contain the governing principle of ethics. Paul has shown in Romans that right conduct and ethics, they always flow in right response to doctrine. In verse one, Paul has already defined the nature of true worship, but from verse two on, he's going to show what does this worship, this true worship, this living sacrifice worship, what does it look like on the ground? Like what does true worship look like? What are the acts of true worship? Worship. First he says, do not be conformed to the world. The SV says, do not be conformed to the world. Uh, ordinarily, the Greek word for work for world is cosmos, and that's not the word Paul uses. He uses the word aeon, which is for age. So this, this text is probably more faithfully translated: do not be conformed to this age. Regardless, when Paul refers to conformity to this world or conformity to this age, what does he mean specifically? What does he mean here in Romans 12, verse two? Perhaps we think of certain things when we think of worldliness. We think of drunkenness. We think of immorality or or cussing or blasphemy. We think of outward acts of of, of disobedience to God. We think that's what we think of when we think of worldliness. Well, surely Paul desires the Roman saints to abstain from such things, but I think Paul has something far deeper in mind, far deeper in mind than outward behavior. Notice how Paul's negative command to not be conformed to this world or this age is contrasted with a positive command to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. This suggests that Paul, in verse 2, is not caught up with externalities of worldly behavior as much as worldly thinking, a worldly mindset, a worldly worldview. And to illustrate this, look at Romans 8. Turn over to Romans 8. It's a couple pages. In Romans 8, Paul works out the differences between the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. Romans 8, verse 5. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's foremost concern, his foremost concern is the realm of the mind. Not to set the mind on the flesh, but to set the mind on the spirit Paul teaches the believers in Rome to set their minds on the spirit. Can you see how Paul's command in Romans 12, verse 2, is is not to refrain from external behavior. Paul is calling believers away from worldly thinking. To be of this age entails a mindset. It is to be constrained by wicked thinking, by temporal thinking, by foolish thinking. The Christian, who possesses the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Is filled with a gospel hope that changes everything. It's filled with a worldview, a view of time, a view of life that changes everything. Do you appreciate how practical this is? Think just the Christian's view of time. The Christian status as saint involves an entirely different view of time. I think of the way the world looks at time. I think of employers who ask, hey, what is your 10-year plan? Where do you envision yourself in 10 years? But I must say, I'm not working with a 10-year plan. As a Christian, I'm working with a 10,000-year plan. I look forward to the resurrection and the life of the world to come. I'm looking to eternity. I'm looking looking forward to everlasting life. I live with a keen awareness that I'm laying up treasure in heaven. And friends, as I preach to you now, I live with a keen awareness that a hundred years from now, everyone here will be dead. And we will all stand before God. And we will be judged. And many of us in this room will be ushered into everlasting life and paradise with Christ and fellowship with him. And there's maybe some of you that will be ushered into an eternity of separation from God in hell. Can you see him? How the mind of the spirit changes your view of time. I know that in this moment, in these few years I'm giving an, given of this life, that's only what's done for Christ that will last. Brothers and sisters, do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this age. This world is passing away. And everything in it. And we have been adopted by God and we look forward to an inheritance. We look forward to a treasure that rust and moth cannot destroy. Can you see how this changes everything? Let this perspective shape your priorities. Let this perspective, this mindset, mold how you use your time. I believe in common grace. Common grace, that, that doctrine that God can so set his favor upon a culture and a people in such a way that they can piece away or put together uh, upright lives. They can do morally upright things. We all have lost neighbors and family members and co workers who can piece together commendable lives. Brothers and sisters, there's something wrong if there's nothing nothing discernible between the thinking of Christians and the thinking of the lost. Difference in their priorities, their spending habits, their saving habits, their use of time, their value for family, how they view retirement. Christian, how is your mind, your thoughts, your thinking discernibly different from your lost neighbor's? My friend, true worship entails a life led by an entirely new principle. Our response to God in worship looks like forsaking the thinking of this world. The thinking and the actions of this world. The first act of worship that Paul lays out is to not be conformed to this age. His second act of worship is to be transformed. The negative command... Paul follows with a positive command to be transformed, and I could hardly think of a more infuriating command. You, Christian, be transformed. Imagine if I took Pastor Tim outside and I said, Tim, I want you to obey God. I want you to be transformed. I want you to grow wings and fly to the top of the building. That'd be ludicrous. That'd be insane. That'd be insane because how is Tim supposed to do that? He doesn't know how to grow wings. He has no means of accomplishing that task. And Paul's Paul's task here would be just as ludicrous, except Paul provides the means. What is the means of this transformation? It is the renewal of the mind. The word renewal, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yet notice the Holy Spirit's work of renewal is performed upon the mind. According to this text, the avenue through which the Spirit transformed people is through thought. Intellectual content, mindsets, thinking, neurons firing. Friends, don't be confused. True worship involves more than a transfer of doctrinal content, yet it is not less than doctrine. The mind must grapple with God. And as the mind grapples with God rightly, in doing so, the heart, soul, and life are changed. That, that first in 2 Corinthians is so instructive. We with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, are changed. How are we changed? By beholding God. That's mindset. That's renewal of the mind. The fundamental application here is that should we want to change, should we want to grow or forsake this age, we must know God. This is why we organize our services the way we do. So much doctrinal content. We want you to know the Lord. This is why the Bible is so caught up with teaching. A heart cannot be properly animated in a vacuum of truth. You need to understand and read your Bible. You need sermons, you need lessons, you need the renewal of your mind. And that's not just for renewal's sake. Paul offers a purpose to this reformation, this this renewal, this transformation. He says, That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word discern is probably better translated approve. And the idea is that through testing and the renewal of our minds, our will is brought into greater and greater conformity to the will of God. Notice how Paul says he says testing. That word should give us great encouragement. Christian life is a marathon. Christian life is a marathon. I'm not saying it's long. And it's not a sprint. As one of the commentators says, he says, the renewal of the mind does not take place overnight, but it is a lifelong process by which our way of thinking is to resemble more and more the way God wants us to think. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is one of daily, round and pound one foot in front of the other, gradual conformity to the will of God. This is why you need the church. This is why you need to be here. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage you while it's called today, to spur you on into love and good deeds. The Christian life is not to be meant to be lived alone, it's to be led before the face of God with other saints. These are the acts of worship. What is worship? The main idea is that true worship is a right response to God, in which we offer our lives completely to Him. I want to close with just a couple brief applications, the You Cornerstone. First, Christian, consider the ministry of the mind. Like, consider and appraise and value mind ministry. Not mind ministry. I'm all for ministry to minds. So I'm talking about mind ministry. Don't despise the work of teaching and preaching. I can confidently say the most the thing, the most important thing you can do in your life is find a way to hear as many good sermons as you humanly possibly can. Like you need sermons. You need to sit under the preaching of God's word. And parents, I encourage you, think about this with your children. Look, get them a good education Whether you homeschool them, private school. Get them a good education. Feed them good meals. Help them, Teach them how to be good citizens. But please, please don't forget your foremost task. They need to love Christ's church. And they need to be in a church where they will most fully experience the renewing of their minds. They must know God and through exposure of his person, they will love him and lead lives of true worship. Fathers, maybe the greatest priority in your life is not to provide the most you possibly can for your family. I've noticed a impulse of many fathers, especially fathers that maybe didn't have much growing up, that they need to give their children as much as they possibly can. I need to give them above and beyond, a larger house, bigger cars. I need to pay for their college. I need to provide them a better life. Well, brothers, there's much less commendable about that. The Bible would commend that impulse to provide for your family. And it would commend the impulse to provide generously for your family. But don't let that principle of provision distract you from your foremost task your task as a parent and your task as a father is to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the lord to love christ to cherish his bride to obey him to follow him to follow his leading that is your task as a father and those other things will follow don't forsake your task Brothers and sisters, consider the ministry of the mind. Lastly, Christian, consecrate your life. Consecrate your life. For Christians, I worry a sermon like this can sound far too duty-oriented. Like these are the things you must do. Perhaps it properly is duty-oriented. It is, in reality, our duty to worship God with our whole lives. The Christian life of worship is one of profound sacrifice. The Christian life of worship is one that demands everything from us. But Please don't forget. The Christian life is one of profound pleasure. It is one of profound delight. It is a happy life. It is a satisfied life. It's the only life worth living. Brothers and sisters, let us resolve with one another to ensure that every inch of our lives is consecrated to our Lord, for He is the only one who satisfies us. Let us adopt the posture of that hymn we sang a moment ago Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my will. And make it line. Let my days flow in endless praise. Brothers and sisters, consecrate your life. And to non-Christians that are here today, I want you to know that this sermon in many ways has been a call to worship. It's been a call to worship, particularly of Christians, to see their lives as whole-souled offerings to the Lord. But I want you to know this call to worship is extended to you as well. Jesus invites you. Jesus invites sinners to come to him. He invites beggars to come to him. He invites the hungry to come to him and eat. He says, "Come to me, all you who are heavy laden." In John six, he says, "All those who come to me, he will by no means cast out." In John seven, he says, "Come to me, all ye who thirst." I'll satisfy you. And out of your heart will flow rivers of water. You must know that to be outside of Christ is to hunger. Outside of Christ is to starve. To be outside of Christ is to thirst. And it's to wither away under the power of sin. Jesus invites you. He invites you to worship him. He invites you to come to him in faith and repentance. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that the Father raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. His promise is offered to all who will receive it, and then you can worship the Lord. Right, to pray with. Me? Father, we ask that the words of our life and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and in death. But Father, we are painfully aware of the ways that we fall short. You have given us so much to respond to, yet we we spurn who you are and what you have done for us. Father, we ask that you would work in us, Lord, engender within your people a greater devotion to you, a greater commitment to Christ, a greater love for our Savior. Father, help us to behold God clearly, that we might be changed. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. grass withers it has an age the flowers they fade they have an age but the word of our Lord remains forever it's ageless let's stand together and be dismissed peace be to the brethren and love with faith through Jesus Christ our risen Lord until the day breaks and the shadows flee away church Go in peace.